we'll start tonight with a principle. No human being is without a master. We're all a slave to something, and that principle is always in effect. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So you see the principle from Scripture is that we're always enslaved by something, and that will make more sense as we go forward, but you need to understand that principle. Second principle is that Christ has abolished every system of making myself righteous. Every system of making myself righteous or making ourselves righteous. We see in Romans 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Have you ever read that passage in Romans 10 and thought, now what does that mean? He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, what we're going to see tonight is that the flesh within us is very active all the time. And it's working to, we're, we're born into sin. And because of that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to self-justify all the time. We're always trying to, inside of our heart, self-justify. I'll explain that more in a moment. So what the flesh does is it teaches us to, to stay in control of our lives what we need to do is worship other things. And so we're constantly in a mode of, of worship. And as we're worshiping, that is creating a, a situation of slavery where we become enslaved to whatever it is we're worshiping. And we're constantly doing that. And so the flesh wants to be in control and so what we do is we find, and here's the thing, it, what you need to understand is though we all, uh, we all have flesh, all of our flesh operates differently. You see, your flesh is, is drawn to things that mine isn't, and mine is drawn to things that yours isn't. And so it's, it's unique to you and your life experiences and your, the, whatever the case may be. And so, uh, you know, it's driven through your desires. And so just whatever those are, then that leads to however you will in your flesh try to self-justify because we all want to be okay. And so what the flesh does is it tells us the things that we need. And if you think about it, we don't all need the same things. We need different things. You need certain things. I need different things, you know. And, but your, our flesh is what's telling us that we need this. To, to be okay. We need this to be complete. We know this. And so what happens is, is it, it could be like a simple example would be, you know, where you get involved in some hobby. Now, you know, you probably wouldn't like the hobbies that I'm involved in. I probably wouldn't like the hobbies that you're involved in. And we're all, we all have different tastes and different things. But what happens is we get involved in something and then if we're not careful, it goes too far. And that's how things get out of control. That's how people get wrapped up in things that are, that are you know, and then have you ever had situations where maybe you were looking at somebody's life and you thought, how did they get so off track? Why well, I mean, they're so obsessed with something so silly? But it started small, and then it just kept growing and growing. What happened was this what started as an innocent activity started to become the source of self-justification. That See, what happens is like maybe growing up, some of you, your story is growing up, there was something that you were really good at. That can be a real danger, can it? So you're really good at something, and then you become defined by that thing, and then your life you grew up in an environment where people praised you for this thing. And so because of that, 
you self-justify in that thing. Which is why, if you think about it, so people who are really good at something, if that thing is taken away, and it's just a hobby, it's just an activity, it's a meaningless thing that most people do just as a game. But if you're really good at it and it gets taken away, your life begins to crumble down around a game. You see? Because it's out of control. Because why? Because what's happened is I start finding my justification in that thing. And that's what the flesh is constantly trying to do. Our flesh wants wants to, to lead us into things, to convince us, to chase after things that will make us okay. Will make us okay, make us feel like, you know, we're we're good enough or we're complete. So in Galatians seven, we see that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. So these two things are operating constantly within us if we're saved in opposition to one another. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You being your flesh wants to do. So the goal of the flesh is to create compulsive behavior. This is what the flesh wants to do. It wants you and me to do things in a a compulsory manner. It blows things out of proportion. It over-magnifies things. It creates this... uh, urgency around something that is non-urgent. It tries to create, it tries to make something non-essential seem essential. And there are so many illustrations of this. I mean, we're surrounded by, we live in a culture that is a sea of it. And so people just take, that's why people take everything way too far, way too far. So tonight, S, our trait is self-control. Self-control. It is a critical component of being whole. Now, when you look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit given in Galatians 5, there's always a big deal made of the fact that love is first, and probably rightly so, and it's not accidental that love is listed first in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. But when those nine attributes are listed, self-control is last. And I wonder why self-control is last. Maybe because it's the last thing to come, you know? Have you ever thought about that? That it's elusive and it's hard. And maybe self-control is the facet of the Holy Spirit within us, working within us, that, uh, you know, it, it takes the, the, the deepest level of maturity to begin to reveal itself. Yeah. So, let's look at Proverbs 25, 28. The Bible says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls like a city broken into and left without walls now that is a very uh, simple statement that has a magnitude of implications the first thing is that a city without walls is first and foremost defenseless defenseless i want you to understand that self-control The Bible is equating self-control. If you possess self-control, then you are like a city with fortified walls. Now, I spent a lot of time studying this passage, and I want you to know that the best way to understand this passage, uh, in my opinion, is to understand yourself as the city and the walls as the spirit. That's the best way to understand it. And when, when you think about a city that has broken down walls, see, some people are tempted to think about that as, you know, oh, wow, what a welcoming place. You know, that there's no walls around it, so everyone's 
welcome to come in. It's like it's, you know, wonderful and, and open. And, well, that would be true if we lived in Mayberry and there was no danger. But here's what you got to look at. If you look closely at that verse, it answers that question for us. It says what happened to the walls, doesn't it? You see, you, we already know that's not true because, first of all, the city's already been broken into and it originally had walls and now it doesn't have walls. So it's not like it's just existed in peacefulness without walls. Clearly, bad things happened to now create an environment where it is left unprotected and vulnerable. So whenever the original reader, like whenever you want to know what a text means, you always have to ask yourself, well, what did the original reader understand when they read the text? So what would a, uh, you know, what would a, a, a Jewish person understand in the first century when they read that? Well, they would clearly, without any question, uh, understand living in a city without walls as being a horrific situation because there were, uh, in Bible times, cities that didn't have walls, and they were the most dangerous places imaginable where everything went wild and it was a terrible place to live and a terrible place to go where everyone feared. It was the places that had walls and that were fortified that were considered safe and actually friendly to visit. So a city without walls, if you think about it, you know, you're laying in bed about to go to sleep and then you start thinking, did I lock the door? You know, and I don't know. I mean, I imagine there's, there might be some variation into the way people in this room might uh, respond to the thought of, did I lock the door? Maybe some of you are, uh, I mean, I would think the normal person regardless of where you live or what kind of neighborhood you live in or whatever the case may be, the normal person's going to get up and walk and check and see if they lock the door. Now, there's some of you in the room that probably got some OCD issues, and you've probably already checked it 14 times, but you got to check it one last time because you need therapy, <laughs> which I don't offer, by the way, just a footnote. No OCD therapy here. I got my own issues with regards to that. So, but this would be a situation where you're lying in bed and you don't have a door. That's a whole different ball game. And I can remember uh, living in our, our previous house and we were doing renovations some years ago and we were putting in a new front door and... Uh, Wade put some plywood over the front door and went home. And I wasn't sure that I was really on board with that situation. You know what I mean? I'm thinking, now, if your family lived here, how would you feel about plywood? You know what I mean? Like, what? You know, I felt real vulnerable in that situation. Now, you know, to be fair, that's the only thing we could do. But still... You know, I'm laying in bed thinking, how many screws are in that plywood? And, you know, what kind of screws are there? Like, you could at least have some kind of secret kind of head pattern to where, you know, I mean, what if they're just some, all somebody needs is a Phillips head, and they're in my house. You know what I mean? Like, I'm thinking in the middle of the night, I'm going to hear, wait, wait, wait. That was probably 15 years ago. Do you see? I, I need therapy. A city without walls, that's what it would be like. So the scripture says that if you lack self-control, your life is that way. You're just vulnerable to whatever may come. And here's the thing. Nobody is going to try to convince themselves that there's not danger around us, that we don't live in a dangerous world. And I don't mean danger... By crime, I'm talking about spiritual danger. A world filled with darkness. And where there's... Listen, if you have an enemy that prowls around like a lion 
seeking whom he may devour. You want to have a door. I'm telling you, if there's lions in your neighborhood, there ain't nobody sleeping in that uh, house without a door. It's not happening, right? Okay. So that's the, the correlation. Now understand, by defenseless, you see, I don't mean you can't fight. You could live in a city without walls and you could fight. You just won't win. So you can fight. It's, it's not like you are just, I mean, let's just be fair to what, uh, what I believe the Bible's trying to teach us. You can still fight, you just can't win. And the reason you can't win is because the enemy can come in from every direction. And so you're going to be outnumbered and overtaken. That's how that's going to work. It's going to wear you down. you got to have, you see, because everyone runs out of uh, energy and needs rest. Well, you can't rest if you don't have walls. Now, we hear all this, and we start thinking about self-control. And here's the temptation. is to work at building the walls to make this life or this city more enjoyable. That is the natural response. So you could, you could go home, you could, you could watch a TED talk about self-control, you could read, you could go to, you could get on Amazon, there's four bazillion books about self-control, and all of that to me would be worthless. It'd be worthless because it, it all is the wrong response. It will lead you down the wrong path. What we're seeking tonight cannot be found this way. See, the tendency is to think, okay, I lack self-control. I need self-control. So what we do is we embark on a journey of moral reformation. We try to, we identify this, some weak point in our life, and then we, we decide we're going to clean it up. We're going to straighten it up we're going to get it and and the crazy thing is that what i'm saying right now probably makes sense to most people in the room like that's what we need to do we we lack self-control so we need to get after it and we need to find places in our life that that uh need to be uh we need more to exercise self-control in those areas and so we embark on a journey of moral reformation but here's the problem not only is that only going to offer a temporary solution. Now, you can make it better temporarily. But you're going to ultimately make it, well, according to the Bible, I think seven times worse. Seven times worse. And so here's a perfect example of that from the ministry of Jesus in Luke 11. Now, Jesus is casting out demons in Luke 11. Let me just give you some context so you know what this passage is. This is where the Pharisees come and they accuse Jesus of casting out demons in the power of Beelzebub. They say that he's, he's, he's casting demons out by the power of Satan. Okay? You with me? So then Jesus goes into this, uh, you know, just this brilliant discourse about, wait a minute. You're accusing me of casting out demons in the power of Satan? Why would Satan want to cast out demons? And he talks about a house divided and all these things, right? Here's what he says. Then he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through arid places or waterless places seeking rest to find uh, and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, I'm sure you've read that passage and thought, what in the world does that mean? It means what I just said. What Jesus is talking about is... so. He's, he's speaking of in somebody, there's a demon, and somebody decides that they're going to. That's why when the demon comes back, it's all cleaned up in order. The person has put their life in order. They've gotten themselves in order. They've 
through self-discipline and effort and so on and so forth, whatever the case may be. Maybe they've started taking medication so they don't act in some crazy way or whatever it is. So they, they, through moral reformation, get their life straightened out. And so it, it, it's, they clean up that area of their life. It gets clean for a, for a while. But what happens? The problem, the demonic influence in that area of your life comes back seven times stronger. You know why? Because you've, you, you, can't, you cannot achieve self-control. You can't, listen, remember, you are the city and the walls are not, they're the spirit. You can't build the spirit. You can't build it. You can walk in its power and you can be protected by it. But you can't build it. You can't build it in self-effort. You can't be... And so here's... Remember how we got here. What is the flesh trying to do? The flesh is, is trying to keep us to be driven after self-goals. The flesh wants you to be a driven person. Your flesh is very driven and wants you to be driven. You see, sometimes there's people that, like I meet people that are very driven people. And what's astonishing to me is that the world around them praises their drivenness, yet I can see that their drive is absolutely unbiblical and in the flesh and it's a disaster it's a disaster you see so what what happens is remember the flesh wants to self-justify so it wants you to be it wants you to take that hobby and be driven in it way too far it wants you the flesh wants every man to be obsessed with his job to live for success in his job to work himself to death to put all of his time and energy and effort only into his job. That's what the flesh wants you to do. And if it can't get you to do that, then it wants you to do it in a hobby. Or it wants you to do that with sports. Or it wants you to do that with food. Or it wants you to do that with gardening. Or it wants you to do that with your house. It wants you to do it doesn't matter. It wants you to be driven. That's what the and so the solution to being a city without walls is not to be driven. You is not to go, you know what I gotta do? I gotta get my life together and I gotta focus on this. That you're you're pandering to the flesh, which is what Jesus is talking about. You're gonna make it ten times worse. This is why when someone when someone is driven after something. It doesn't matter what it is because if it's not God, then it's, it's unfulfilling. So you can just fill it in with anything, whatever it is. If that thing, when that thing fails, when that thing falls away, the person who is always known for being really good at something and all of a sudden it goes away, what happens to them? Do they just become completely non-driven people? No, they do not. They become driven in very destructive things, don't they? Which is why, this is why you see uh, professional athletes, when their career is over, if they lose their career, then they become drug addicts. They're driven. They are suicidal. They kill themselves. They're driven. They're driven. This is why people who have enough money to never work again are workaholics and can't stop working. Remember in the very beginning I said everyone's a slave to something? I mean, this is, this is all of our story. All of our story. And so, what you can't do tonight is say, well, what I need is self-control, so I'm going to grip my teeth and get to work so I can, you know, what area of my life am I going to start focusing on so I can get self-control? That, that you be careful because you're going to go, you're, you're, you're pandering to the wrong power and your flesh is going to love it. It's going to love it. 
Now, this can go, this can go in, in very unexpected ways as well. You can, what about, what about uh, being driven by re- religiosity? What about that? People are always trying to infiltrate the church who are driven by religiosity. They're trying to, they want to they achieve a position of power. They want to they some level of uh, preeminence. They want to be seen as something because what they're good at is morality. Do you know anybody like that? I mean, we work really hard to weed them out of here constantly, but they're always trying to come in. Always. Always. And there's always a couple around. But I know who they are. And churches, a lot of churches are filled with them. They're filled with them. And so they're, they're driven and it, because in, in, a, in a misguided church culture, they look like awesome Christians. And they're messengers of Satan. This shouldn't be shocking to you. You should read the book of Jude. The whole book of Jude is about this. And it teaches you everything you ever want to know about it. 2 Corinthians 11. Now, Paul... Well, here, let me just read what he says. For such men are false prophets, false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Look at, what are they disguising themselves as? Church leaders. You see that? They're driven, they're driven to be seen as ultra-spiritual. And no wonder, Paul says, See, people are always shocked. I don't know why this shocks people. This should be so obvious. No wonder, Paul says. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What do you think Satan does when he comes to church? Puts on horns and a red suit with a big stupid tail? No. He tries to look like you and me. And he tries to come in and pretend to be an angel of light. That's what he does. And, he's, and he or she is very driven. They're very driven. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But their end will correspond to their deeds. See, that's the good thing about having a, a good shepherd is that a good shepherd's really good about telling the under-shepherd when danger is around because he loves his flock. And so I always say, I know who you are. And they always say, how do you know who I am? It's because the good shepherd tells the under-shepherd because he loves his flock. There's danger afoot. You just know. You see, be, be aware Do not let this next statement shock you. Some people avoid sin in order to avoid Jesus. You might need to think about this for a second. How do, what what do I mean by that? I mean, we can't, we can't labor here too long because we have places we need to go tonight. We got to get moving. But, so if I look squeaky clean, then no one is going to approach me and talk to me about salvation and talk to me about Jesus and stuff because I look like I don't need it. And so the way to, the way to, the way to be driven in this so you can avoid Jesus by avoiding sin. Yeah. When you, when you read the book of Jude, uh, it's amazing. This, it's so simple that there's just certain characteristics that, an, that, a, uh, that a 
an enemy at masquerading as an enemy of light gives himself away every time. But you have to know what to look for. The telltale sign is you see, the, the way you know, the, the way you know if you uh, are a slave to sin is that you don't know that you're a slave to sin. See, everyone who's not a slave to sin, here, here's the key. The key is, is that the difference between someone avoiding sin in order to avoid Jesus and someone avoiding sin because, out of righteousness is because there's humility. There's humility. As soon as someone tries to tell me how great they are, you will be banished from my presence. I don't have any time for that. I don't want to hear how great you are. And I don't ever want to tell you how great I am because I'm not great. Wherever. So understand that self-control is not willpower. It is not willpower and the reason for that is why remember i said that the tell the book of jude the bible all over everywhere it talks about false teachers it always uh leads you on the trail of humility always right so look if you equate willpower to self-control which i'm 100 convinced there's a whole bunch of you that grew up in churches that just promoted this as biblical like rampant because it's everywhere. And here's the thing. If you promote it as willpower, here's what happens. You're going to be surrounded by people enslaved to pride. Because if willpower will lead me to self-control, then what happens when I start achieving self-control in areas of my life? I start thinking, man, I am awesome. Look at what I did. Look how good I am. You see? No, you're not awesome. Me and you are just sinners saved by grace. And I'm always one thought away from destruction. That's where I'm always at. And it will, it, it's very beneficial to understand that. If, it, if you equate willpower to success, you're going to be in a sea of pride. Self-control only comes when we want something more than the self. That's the key to understanding self-control. You see, if I need self-control in, 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 in my life, if I'm like a city without walls and I need walls, then what i got to do is i got to realize my problem is not this area, that area, this. My problem is self. That's the problem. That's the problem. See, let me explain something. Tony can only walk two ways. Do you understand this? There's only two options there's only two ways I can walk in life. Not three, not two and a half, only two. I can either walk in the flesh or I can walk in the spirit. That are the only two. So you've never seen me. You've never had a conversation with me. You've never bumped into me somewhere where I wasn't walking in one of those two ways. Okay? So if, if I have a self-control problem, I walk in the flesh. Now, if I don't want to walk in the flesh, if I want to fix my problem, I have to learn to walk in the Spirit. Well, guess how you walk in the Spirit? You got to die to self. Self is the problem. Flesh is constantly telling you all the things you want to hear, constantly telling you all the things you need, all the things you like, all the things you... That's what the flesh does. That's why you're warring against all these things. And so you got to want something. you got to want God more than you want self. So self-control, think of it this way. The simple way to understand it is choosing the important thing over the urgent thing. 
Because again, these are just simple practical principles for you to think about. If you wonder, is this the flesh telling me this? Well, one of the telltale signs of the flesh is, is that I said this already twice. The flesh magnifies everything. So the way you know the flesh is trying to deceive you is because the flesh always says this is urgent. This is urgent. You need this. This is urgent. See, the, the, because think about it. The flesh isn't going to come to you and say, hey, you know what? That could possibly be enjoyable somewhere way down the road, maybe 10 years from now. I mean... The flesh has no patience. The flesh isn't waiting for that. The flesh wants to get you now. The flesh is like, hey, so sometimes the flesh will get you thinking forward, but it's all about now. If you do this now, then you'll get that then. But it it has to have urgency. So all you have to do is ask yourself, when when, when you're doing something or you're drawn to something or whatever's going on in your life, say, is this urgent or important? That's all you got to do. If people who walk in the Spirit of God, they, they, they've mastered living for what's important. In other words, which is the same way of saying they've mastered not being mastered by other things. Or the same way of saying they've mastered being mastered only by the master. That's what it means. We way overcomplicate this. All right, so let's, let's, let me give you two simple things to, because I want, you to, I want to give you practical things you can do, okay? How do, I, how do I choose the important over the urgent, okay? Well, I don't know, but the Bible tells us. And the, my favorite examples of this always come from the life of Paul. So the first thing you do is envision the important thing. I do this with everything. This is why I'm very concerned. I'm concerned about you if you lack imagination. That kind of freaks me out. I like people with imagination because imagination is a God-given weapon to be successful in Christianity. You need imagination. Yeah. And you know from hanging around here, I have a very vivid imagination. And when I read the Bible, I'm imagining all kinds of things. And it's a gift. And you, should, you need to stir that up. Like if you, if you say, well, I just don't have a good imagination, you don't nurture it. You need to read things that inspire your imagination. And for goodness sakes, encourage that in your children. you we, you got to raise children with a great imagination. That is very important. Because the Apostle Paul conquers everything in his life this way. He envisions it. That's why, remember back in 1 Corinthians 9, we studied a few months ago. Do you not know that in the race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? Now, you go, where did this come from? There's nobody racing, Paul. We're not even talking about a race. We're not talking about the Isthmian Games. We're not talking about... But Paul is, you know why? Because this is how Paul wins. This is how he does what's important. He envisions it. And so he shares this with us. See, you, you run is in such a way to obtain it. So every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Mm-hmm. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. And then he says, I do not box as one beating the air, but I disciple my body or I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others that I might or I should be disqualified. So and when Paul is tempted by something, which he is and he admits it, that oftentimes he does the thing he doesn't want to do and doesn't do the thing he should do. And here's how he conquers it. He envisions. So when he goes, here's what seems to be urgent. This is what my flesh is going. You need to do this. You need to do this. But this over here is important. But it's how do I? So he envisions the reward of doing what's important. So instead of doing what gratifies his flesh, he thinks about this imperishable crown. See, he's envisioning this. It's It's a great motivation. It's a great motivation. 
I mean, if I didn't envision things, I would get into all kinds of trouble. It keeps me out of all sorts of trouble. I'm not going to explain that any further or else we're going to get way late and it's going to get weird. You see, uh, it's this. You want the image of, of what, of, of victory. You want the image of what God wants. You want to envision what that's like. Listen, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some way that you've managed to do this, but I just don't think it's possible. I'm not going to live passionately for words. It's not going to happen. That's not how, I mean, that, how do you do that? Like you, you're going to passionately devote your life to pursuing some words? But when I envision what it's like, See, like, if I, we, but like, when I get discouraged and I think, man, you know what, I need, I ought to just go to Subway and start making sandwiches. My life would be a heck of a lot easier. Sometimes I think that. So, you know what I do when I think about that? I start thinking about that prize. I start thinking about that crown. I start thinking about that. I think about that. Like, like when I'm, when, when, I'm, when I'm about to, I'm, I'm like, you know, i got to preach a funeral for a saved person. And I'm like, now what am I going to say? I start thinking about heaven. And I start thinking, what are they doing? And I start thinking, what is it like? And I said, I don't have to drum up some kind of inspiration. I just start thinking about envisioning what these words bring to life in my mind. And then I'm motivated out of my mind. See? But if it's just some black and white type on a piece of paper no wonder you're all the time in the flesh you got to envision what's important the second thing then that's not the first part that's not the whole thing the second thing is that vision's got to stay close to you it's got to be accessible because here's what's not going to work this is what's not going to work what's not going to work is that when i'm bummed out and having a bad day and I'm driving down the road, and I pass the subway and think, you know, I'm hungry, but also I might want to be a sandwich artist, you know what I mean? Because my job is way too stressful, and I could just go in there and go, you know, what kind of bread would you like? What kind of cheese do you want? I mean, man, it, that to me sounds like, whew, like you're not taking that home. You don't go home, you know, like, oh, man, people ask for, you know, the wrong kind of cheese today. Who cares? You ain't eating it. To me, that sounds amazing. Now, I'm driving down the road. So, all of a sudden, I need, I need to access that vision. Now, if I, don't have, if I don't have 1 Corinthians 9 committed to memory in my head, then it's of no benefit to me. If I don't have this vision in my head that I can access, in other words, you, if you got to go get your Bible, start flipping through your Bible, find out where that thing is, all this kind of stuff, well, then half the time you're going to be defeated to the flesh before you ever get there. So you got to envision it, but you got to have that vision implanted. Now, here's where, you know, because everybody wants something to do. Well, here's where something you can do comes in, right here. Keep it close at hand. This is where discipline comes into the picture. This is why you need to commit God's Word to memory. And this is why it's so frustrating to me when somebody memorizes a verse and doesn't know what it means. Doesn't know what it's about. It, what, no, it's no good. If you memorize a verse and you don't have a vision of what that is, well, what good is it? It's no good. You got to know what it is. You got to have a... So that's what I'm saying. These, these important things to you, you got to know these things and keep them close. And then you, you need to be disciplined in making sure you can access them. Because here's what I know. Wanting to do good, it is not enough. You know what everybody does when their life burns down because the flesh gets the best of them? 
They don't want that. Nobody wants to be addicted. Nobody wants to be bankrupt. Nobody wants to be caught. Nobody wants to be busted. Nobody wants to be exposed. The flesh conned you into doing that to self-justify yourself. And then when you got in it, it pulled the rug out from under you and exposed you as a failure. And what drove you into that was trying not to fail. You see how, how sneaky and, and dishonest the flesh is? The flesh got you on that path to self-justify and then burned you to the ground in it. That's what it does. And people that just keep going around and around and around and around and around and around. And you go, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And you just keep doing it, keep doing it. Well, here's the thing. Not wanting to do it is not good enough. That's not how this works. Discipline, not desire, determines destiny. Always ask yourself this question. Not, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. My first question. You come in my office. You sit down. Pastor, here's what happened. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. The first thing out of my mouth is, what are you doing to not do it? Huh? What is, what's your plan? Well, I don't have a plan. Well, then no wonder you failed. What's the plan? What is the plan? No, you know what? It's never happened. No one's ever said, well, it burned down, Pastor, and I don't want to do it, and I don't know why it happens. And I go, what are you doing to not do it? And no one has ever said, well, I got a vision. I envision what it would be like, and I've committed those visions to memory, and that didn't work. That's never happened. It's never happened. The reason why self is winning is because you, you see, here's the thing. You have resurrection power. So, that, so my question is, so whatever your problem is, uh, can't be beat by resurrection power. Who, who, who? Come on, somebody, raise your hand in here. Just please tell me what problem you got that's more powerful than resurrection power. So now, if the Bible says you have access to resurrection power and you are continually failing, then someone is lying. Is the Bible lying? Okay, so what's the problem? Clearly, you are not accessing resurrection power. And how do you access resurrection power? The way I access it is I take the Word of God, I envision what's important, and then I commit it so that I can get it whenever I need it. And so every time the lion comes up to my door, I kick him straight in the face, hard as I can. Every time the voice comes in my head, I just go, why don't you just shut up? That's not true. Because here's what's true. See, you want me to chase that, but I'm chasing an imperishable crown. See, that's what I'm chasing. You're trying to get me off on this side gig, but I'm not into that because I'm chasing an imperishable crown. And I'm picturing that in my head. Like I'm talking about, I'm picturing the whole deal in my head, my way. I'm picturing Tony winning the race. In my head, I can see that happening. That's what I'm seeing. And so when that distraction comes along, that temptation comes along, I'm picturing, hold up a second, because whatever that is, it ain't better than winning this race over here. It ain't better than standing up on that top platform right there and winning the most important thing in the universe, win. No siree. He can't compete with that. But if I don't know it, I don't forget it, I don't think about it, I, well, then I get distracted in all kind of stuff. Your destiny is going to be determined by where you're putting discipline. That's just, that's just a simple fact. So you could just get out a piece of paper, write down one, two, three, four, five, and you write down. Here's the top five areas of my life where I exercise the greatest discipline. And you then have now have a vivid picture of what your destiny looks like. Because that's what it's going to look like. Where you're putting, where you're putting your discipline is going to determine your destiny. There you go. There you go. 
This is why Jesus always said, well, so-and-so is, you know, well, they have their reward. You want to put all your discipline into your job? Go ahead. Make a lot of money. Buy nice stuff. Live. Enjoy your life all you want to. Jesus said, you got your reward. You got it. Your reward's not in the next life. Your reward's in this life because that's where you put all your discipline. You put all your discipline. Then somebody, somebody will say, well, I have discipline nowhere. Well, there you go. The flesh has one primary goal. One. To keep you from what is most important. That's what the flesh does. The flesh doesn't care. You think the flesh cares what hobby you get obsessed with? Do you think your flesh cares whether you're obsessed with Alabama football or Georgia football or some other ridiculous game? Your flesh doesn't care. Just as long as it's one of them. Just pick one. Anyone. Get you an old car and start fixing that thing up. And you just go out there in your garage and just spend all your hours out there polishing that idol. Making that sucker just everything it could be. And let it just, you think your flesh cares about that? Go ahead. Have at it. Don't care. Your flesh doesn't care what you eat. It just wants you to eat too much of it. That's what it does. It doesn't care. It doesn't care. It's non-discriminatory. It wants you to take anything in your life and elevate it higher than it should be. It's out of, you know what? So many moms, so many moms today, church going, church moms. You're obsessed with your children. And your flesh is behind it 100%. It's not the Spirit of God. It's your flesh. You shouldn't be obsessed with your children. You should love them, but not be obsessed with them. You shouldn't be obsessed with your spouse. You should love them, but don't be obsessed with them. You should be obsessed with Jesus. See, there's only one thing in the world I, can, I, I can't live without. Christ. There's a lot. Listen now. There's a lot of things in the world I don't want to live without. But I can't. You understand? Am I, am I against your hobby? Nope. They're not my hobbies. I don't want you judging my hobbies, and I don't want to judge your hobbies. I'm just giving you examples. I'm just simply saying that whatever I'm into, I'm moderately into it. And if I leave moderate, it's got to go. It's got to go. It's moderate. So at any time, whatever I'm into, I could lose that, and I'm fine. Because if I can't, if, that, if that's going to cause a problem, then there's a problem. That's the problem. Because it's keeping me from what's most important. And so it's just like you just need to take some spiritual inventory. And, you know, so every, you're not going to, the top five things that you put discipline into, it's not going to be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. First of all, that's cheating. Second of all, that's lying. And there's probably 10 other reasons why that's bad. Okay? That's, that's not. So, so be honest. What is it? Now, let's just say hypothetically that the, your, the thing in your life you're most disciplined in is your relationship with God. Okay, great. Now, whatever's two, three, four, five, because they're there. There's something there. Other things there. They're on my list. They're there. And none of those things, as long as that number one is number one, those other things can be there. But here's the thing. Those, I need to monitor those four things under there. And make sure that any, at those things, I can live without those things. Those things aren't consuming me. Those things aren't, don't, I'm not, I don't obsess about those things. And those things aren't trying to, this is the thing. That, and you know as well as I do, when I've had to 
throw stuff away? Because I've had to do plenty of it. I got a lot of ex-hobbies. They got, they just had to go. So, well, here's the thing is that thing starts encroaching on my number one. You see, it, 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 I feel competition. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Nobody knows this except for you. I'm just sharing the truth from my heart. But in your little, you know, between here and here, this is your world where nobody else knows. But here's what it is. When you're, when you're reading your Bible, see, if I'm reading my Bible and all of a sudden I'm thinking about doing something else, and that thing, that other thing is always coming to my mind when I'm reading my Bible or when I'm praying or spending time with God, whoop, there's a problem. That's a problem. That is a problem. See, it tells you if you just listen. It'll tell you. But see, the thing is, is that this, is, this isn't something that is so easy to hide in this and to die in this because it's just you. No one else knows. So here's, you, you're like, well, all right, let's talk about this most important thing. Let's give it some, some, some traction, then we'll be done, okay? So you come to faith in Christ. God saves you. You're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. All of our sin has been forgiven. We went from one moment facing this eternal sentence for my extensive and decorated criminal record. And I'm guilty. And I have no way out of it. And then in salvation, my charges are not dismissed. You understand? I'm not, I'm not, they, they weren't dismissed. I'm not paroled. They weren't excused. No, no, that's not what happened. All the crimes that I committed and deserved to face the full punishment for committing, that punishment was paid in full by somebody else for me. Someone took my place in that. That is a huge difference from being written off the record. Someone else took it. And in order for that to happen, God slaughtered his son, his only son. He turned his back on the one he loves the most in order for that to be accomplished, in order for me to be able to be set free. So here we are tonight having this conversation. What is most important? See, remember when I said what makes a person courageous and I taught you that your courage is directly linked to what you think about when you think about salvation? What's most important? I mean, did God do all that so that I could just come to church and sit in a pew and listen to a Bible study and say, I'm a Christian? Is that why He did all that? Do you think He did all of that so that we could just go, Yay, we're saved. That's not why he did it. He did it for way more than that. He did it for what's most important. That's why when you get this, your flesh gets dethroned. It gets... It, it, it gets it takes a, a, a mortal bullet right to the heart. 
it doesn't fully die until we're gone from this life and go to heaven. But I'm telling you right now, it gets devastated when you get this reality. Because it doesn't have any weapon to fight it. See, in Christ, our lives have purpose and meaning. We're not, we're not saved just to be able to say that we're saved or be able to come sit in church. And No, we've been given a treasure in Christ at the highest possible expense and price. And so now our lives have eternal significance. And so what we do matters. It matters. See, God's not just saying, hey, you need to do what's most important and not do what's urgent. You need to have self-control because it's important, because it's a good thing to do, because it's no. He's saying, hey, Tony, you need to have self-control because I killed my son for you to have access to resurrection power. I did that so that you could be victorious. See, sin, he doesn't say, oh, you know, you can win against sin. Or you can, it says, the Bible says, the gospel says sin no longer has dominion over me. That means that in order for me to sin, I have to allow sin to take place. I have to give it permission. Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And so my life has this significance. And so the Bible, here's a simple way the Bible says this. You can, there's a hundred places. Titus 2. Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. So why? So we could just sit around and look good? No. See, we have purpose that we'd be zealous for good works. You know what that is? That's walking in the Spirit. He did all that so that we wouldn't have to walk in the flesh. So the... See, maybe some of you came in here tonight and you think sometimes you walk in the flesh and you're like, oh well. And you think that walking in the flesh is just a problem for you. See, you, your motivation for walking in the Spirit is you want things to go better for you. Wait a minute. No wonder you're so bad at this. That's not what this is about. He did all that so that we wouldn't have to walk in the flesh anymore. So how dare us go, well, if I walk in the flesh, it'll just be all right. Or I won't do it for long. Or I'll, no. He made I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm just telling you right now. I'm envisioning winning that race. And when I'm winning that race, I'm part of a special people. Zealous for good works. Because he enabled me to be able to do that by everything that he did on my behalf. See, the moment of salvation is a moment of awakening to the reality that we're part of something bigger, something eternal. You see, here's the truth. The, the race that I'm, that, that I'm envisioning winning, this is the beauty of it. Jesus had to die to pay my entrance fee into the race. I couldn't even get in the race. No one's even allowed to run in the race unless somebody dies for him. See, so just the fact that I'm in the race, oh my goodness, I'm in the race, y'all. He died so that I could be in the race. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm just telling you right now, Tony's in the race. Like, I'm in. All my life I had no shot, no chance, no way, buried under the weight of all the mistakes of my past. And then suddenly in an instant, somebody said, you're in. I paid your entrance fee. You can run. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm running like hell. That's what I'm doing. I'm running every day hard, hard as I can, because I get to do it. I don't need people to, to say, oh, hey, I mean, no, I'm in it. And I know how I got there. And I'm standing on that podium. You hear me? 
I'm sitting at that, at that banquet table. I'm eating that feast. There's a place in heaven at a table. It's got a name tag. It says Tony Carnes. He's sitting in that chair right there. There ain't nobody else sitting in that chair but Tony. I'm getting there. That's what this is about. So we cannot waste what we've been given. We can't waste it. Self-control is not just a virtue to make you a more productive person. No. It's a way of understanding what this whole thing is about. Whatever your flesh is conning you into, you got the power to shoot it in the heart, I'm telling you. Kill it. We all get conned. We've all been conned. But you just envision. Maybe for you it's not the race. You, there's just, when you're reading the Bible, you just, you just envision all these wonderful things. And the things that move your heart. Lock them in. And every time somebody tries to get you to run a different race, tells you there's a shortcut, mm -mm. no, you remind yourself, I know what the Bible says. I know the vision God's given me. I'm not going to waste what I've been given. I'm never going back. To the life when I couldn't run the race. Futility. Just trying to get through and trying to survive another day. No. No. Nope. 